Hello and welcome to Switch It, where we know all about dribbling on to an unsatisfactory conclusion long after everyone has stopped paying attention. Expensive, confusing and wetter than an otter's pocket. No, I'm not talking about Kevin Costner's Waterworld, but the second test between England and Pakistan. Ahead of the third and final test of the summer, we'll be dredging up what insight we can. Only 134.3 overs were possible in Southampton, as bad light, poor weather and some questionable officiating combined to frustrating effect. For all involved, it was an immensely forgettable experience, and that's just what my two guests will be allowed to do after this podcast. Today I'm joined by George DeBell and Osman Samiuddin, two men living the cricket writing dream of squinting into webcams and shouting at clouds. How is it for you, uh, George? Did the biobubble threaten to spring a leak? Oh, it was very frustrating. Of course it was. Uh, it, it was uh, boring and uncomfortable, but, um, you know, we have been spoiled uh, in the last year or so because almost every test this summer, apart from that, has been really good fun. They were in South Africa. They were last summer against Australia. I guess we were due. And although it was frustrating and there were uh, lessons that could be learned from various things that happened, actually, I don't think there's anything that could have been done uh, to to have uh, forced a result. The weather was pathetic. Indeed, Oz, you you know a fair bit about gloomy English weather, um, but have you, had you seen anything quite like that? <laughs> you know, like the thing is, the week before it, everyone in my house at least had been praying for some colder weather. <laughs> just so <laughs> miserably hot, uh, especially in London. It was just so because houses, of course, are not built for heat, are they here, which is something that nobody ever told me, um, which was great. So you know, everyone was wishing, but I, I don't think they were wishing for weather quite like that. I think, you know, it, it made it just really difficult for everyone. Um, every, and that's, you know, players, officials, journalists covering it, fans, not least, just made it very difficult for everyone to manage a game like that. And especially when, you know, I think the evidence of the first test, the evidence of the last couple of series between these two guys, and the evidence of what little play we did actually have, it would have been a great test match. It, you know, it, it, they're good teams. They're both like, or at least they're good when they play against each other. They make for good cricket. Um, and, and it would have been really good. And I think that's part of the frustration of why, you know, everyone was really angry and just annoyed that this test didn't go further than it did ultimately. Uh, yes, there was, it was boiling over, bubbling uh, under and, uh, and all sorts, the, uh, the residual frustration. And, Richard Kettleborough's light meter sounds a bit like an alt punk band from Basic and Stoke, but uh, that 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 small contraption that the umpires used to determine whether conditions were playable um, did end up taking centre stage. Unfortunately, uh, George, you've expressed some pretty strong views about this. Is it is it time for the ICC to to look at the issue? Oh, it's been time for years. So um, I thought the light was better in Manchester when they weren't playing at times, but. There was a result, wasn't there? There was a result in four days, one of the games. So um, it was overlooked. But uh, for a long time, I think um, the ICC have looked a bit behind the game in terms of bad light in particular. And also in um, um, restarting after delays. So um, I thought that there's been quite a significant change in uh, approach over the last week or two, I think the ICC have been stung by the, the level of criticism. And uh, that's no bad thing, because I think they're quite complacent um, uh, and out of touch and elitist and all those other things that I've said previously. So uh, in terms of, uh, of bad light, I've got doubts about um, 
whether they should stop for bad light in general, I have, yeah. But I think that my doubts are pretty irrelevant and that we should test these things scientifically. So let's do that. Let's, let's invest in some science friends in eye places, as I say, to, to see what difference it makes um, when it does become dangerous or, or unreasonable. Uh, so that's something very practical that could be done. And just on a basic level, just tell us the meter readings. Tell us. Tell us when it's getting close. Um, tell us when it, you know, what that reading was and what it means. Uh, just be a bit more accountable. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe Kettleborough has had uh, more criticism than f- uh, reasonable because this has been going on for years. Uh, uh, but if good comes of that sort of farcical game, then that, that's okay in the grand scheme of things. Um, I like to think of it as mood lighting, in, the, in a, that it put everyone in a bad mood. Um, Oz, we know that kind of the, uh, uh, the ICC have discussed this before. There's been resistance in sort of various quarters, I suppose. It, there's a view about sort of umpire safety, player safety, and, and also the players being a little reluctant to kind of uh, um, expose themselves, I suppose, to conditions that maybe um, will influence the game unduly one way or another um the cricket committee discussing this is the first place um it has to go i, I think but then um, it might take some time to actually get uh, movement on this yeah in, you know I, I just wanted to say on what george was saying i just wanted to pick up on that uh i, I guess you know i've had the benefit of talking to people within the ICC and around, you know, the committees over the last couple of days, just to find out, you know, a little bit more about this. And we had suspected, I think George had actually, when, you know, put up this question earlier in one of our internal chats, um, just to find out about whether the ICC had done some kind of scientific study on, on light. And you know, the thing about the ICC actually, which maybe doesn't get enough attention and, you know, far be it from me to kind of praise them in any way, but uh, they, they, they're pretty good with, with, with kind of doing studies on stuff. So, you know, they, they reached out to science for biomechanics on chucking. They've done it with, um, they've done it with DRS. They, you know, went to MIT in the US and they discussed it with scientists over there and got Kumble involved. Um, so with, with light, I found out, and hopefully I'll, I'll be doing a piece on this later at some point, but we found out that there was a study that the ICC carried out when David Richardson was um, the general manager of cricket operations back in 2011-12. And so they did a study in three countries, um, Dubai, the U, uh, Australia, and England, at, at three grounds there, um, where in a non-competitive situation, they got some professional players, batsmen, to come and bat around that time. So twilight, twilight-ish time, they did it. Um, and and, and they, you know, they had professional kind of setup, they had light meters set up. And they said to the guys that, listen, when, when you start finding it difficult to sight the red ball under the floodlight, with the floodlights on, let us know. And so because there was nothing at stake in the match, you know, they, they, they knew that the batsman would be fairly objective about it. And, they, you know, it's not like your career is on the line or your match is on the line. So you say, OK, well, and so they, they, they came across some readings by which they decided, they made the decision that, OK, you know, there is a point at which the red ball uh, under floodlights becomes a dangerous object um, with the light fading and the floodlights not being able to provide enough light to cover up for it. So there is a point there. That means that we have to then basically give the power to the umpires to call playoff when we get to a point where it becomes difficult. Now, what I'm trying to find out more on 
is what those readings were and whether they're standardized across countries, which they can't be presumably, you know, because light conditions are different in different countries. But so to the point that George was making, they, they have done some research on this as, as, the, as the ICC usually do on situations like this. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't come up often for discussion. That's also true. Like, I think the last time that it was discussed seriously at a cricket committee meeting was maybe 2013, 2014. And that was after an ashes test, in fact, at Lords when, um, uh, was it when England well, the, were close the, to a chase? And the Oval. Um, was it the yeah, Oval? The, or, uh, yeah. I think the final day, um, yeah. yeah, when they'd been sort of set 200 on and they got that And so apparently there. that was prompted by one of the players on the fielding side, Australia, prompting the umpire to say, ask them that, you know, hey, we, had a, we, we went off for light that was worse than this a couple of days ago when we were batting. How about we try and do that this time? And so the light meter came out and then they did go off because they discovered that light was poor. Um, you know, so, so that's when the last discussion happened. And the other point really is that I know, I know we make a big deal out, and we've made a bigger deal out of it this time because of the situation around the match. You know, it's, it, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We haven't had much cricket at all in that time. And so there was a lot more focus on it. But bad light's an issue that comes up. Actually, if you think about it, it, it doesn't happen that often, I, you know, as much as you might think it would. That doesn't mean that they should not be discussing ways to, you know, to kind of assuage whatever they can with it. But it, 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 we've got to keep in perspective that this has happened at a time when, you know, we've been dying to see some desk cricket. And so our reactions obviously are going to be kind of a bit, a bit more acute, I guess, than, than they would have been otherwise. Um, as George has mentioned over here, draws have become pretty uncommon in, in, in tests. I mean, in, if you're looking at time being lost in the game and all that, I think only three uh, since 2014, uh, that Southampton test being the third one. Um, but George, various other things that uh, people have talked about, maybe subbing in a pink ball, which uh, sounds like it would come with some difficulties. Um, obviously, pink balls using day-night tests. And the question of earlier start times, which, as we've heard the, the news this morning, um, certainly for this third test, um, is that there will be the option to start at 10.30am uh, and that will be considered um, in the future for tests in England, um, but has previously sort of been off the table. Um, a sort of eleven a.m. was the sacrosanct start time for for whatever reason. But th they've shown some flexibility here, which makes sense, I suppose, because there are no crowds in for this game. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's a welcome step in the right direction. It's mainly a gesture, I think, but it will help. So so that's a good thing. I don't think there's any reason why you couldn't do it with crowds in. I think it's quite an interesting example, though. Uh, I think it's the right thing to do. But I do think it will uh, be an advantage to bowlers. I mean, you think of all those NatWest or Gillette Cup or whatever you want to call them, finals, going back, and how many were defined by the opening spells of fast bowlers. And you think of Glenn Chappell or Steve Jeffries or you know, whoever else you want to mention. And it was very much a, question, a case of uh, win the toss, win the final. And you would insert always. So, uh, but 10.30, you know, it seems reasonable to me uh, and the right thing to do in terms of other issues. Look, I don't like the pink ball. I don't think it works. Um, I think it creates, on the whole, quite dull cricket, attritional cricket. It doesn't do enough. Um, it goes very soft. and you know. Anyway, um, so I'm not sure that is the answer. Uh, technology is probably the answer long term. and uh, Improve floodlighting if that's possible. Uh, basic uh, measures that could be taken again today. Why can't the umpires wear... Because uh, the umpires are potentially in danger. I get that. Uh, why can't they wear helmets? Why don't they? So that's, that's one thing. I, I, I think I just make them. Uh, you know, why, why wait until something terrible happens? 
Uh, and, it, you know, technology is already looking at things like masks and protective equipment for bowlers, and I fear that's the future, and that's the right thing to do. It's Aesthetically, it might not be what we're used to, but, you know, when I was growing up, batsmen used to wear caps or be bareheaded, and the world's changed, and it has to change, and that's just fine. In terms of the research, um, I don't know how scientific that sounds, to be honest. Uh, you know, asking people how they feel. Uh, is, is that science? Maybe it is. Uh, I still think we can do a bit more there and actually ascertain exactly what happens. I still think that there are times in bright light when vision may be more difficult. And we've we've seen lots of times when people, you know, squint up at the sky and lose the ball in the sun. We can all think of examples of catches being put down. We can think of examples where fielders have lost the ball against the backdrop of crowds. You know, it's difficult to be an international cricketer, but uh, there are... Those uh, difficulties, I'm afraid, uh, are part of the job. So we've got to listen to the players and we've got to listen to the officials. Uh, But I would also like the spectators to be listened to and they don't seem to have a voice at all. Uh, And it's pretty important they are. And I think, as I say, the ECB and ICC were stung this week into action. And uh, they'll be stung a lot more if uh, they start losing spectators. Because there are many sports which have those sorts of farcical scenes. You you wouldn't put up with them, I don't think. Um, and that will become a real issue with, you know, broadcast rights set to be negotiated again and all those other complications. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's an ongoing process, but let's let's be open-minded and let's look into it. I, I, the England team seem to be very keen on a, a different coloured red ball. Um, you know, a brighter coloured red. I mean, I, I presume if that were easily done, it would have happened by now because there was an awful lot of uh, development over the before the decision to decide on the pink ball, you know there were other balls trialed, weren't there? And uh, I presume that if it was easy to just get a different shade of red, that that would have happened already. But you know, uh, technology advances all the time. Again, I would say that if we could play with the same ball all the time, but under better floodlights, that would be the way to go. And the other thing is, um, Rod Bransgrove said he was quoted minimum of a hundred million for a roof. At that ground, I think it'd be a lot less at a standalone, you know, a new build ground. And uh, cricket spent a lot of money on a lot of things. Surely, with all the days lost over the years to weather in England, a roof could be done, could be built. Um, you know, North Hants actually uh, looked at it a few years ago. They had outline planning for a, for a, a new stadium with a roof. Uh, if they could do it, I don't know. I, I, I still don't think that it could be beyond the wit of man. And I have been to a game uh, in Melbourne, Docklands, whatever it's called, Marvel Stadium. Uh, that stadium has a roof. I mean, there are issues with it, but none of them are insurmountable. Why don't we look at that? It would take all the fun out of it, uh, George. Uh, didn't they play, <laughs> Pakistan, Australia, didn't they play a series in Australia? ODI series in which they played a couple of games in an indoor kind of arena? I think well, they did. That, that, well, that stadium, must be that, I don't know. That that Dockland Stadium has been around for quite some time, hasn't it? I, I, was it was it built for mm. the Olympics? And I think has had has possibly had um, international cricket. Certainly has Big Bash because uh, there's that yeah, does, the rule. Yeah. If if you hit the roof, if you hit the roof, isn't there? It's a it's either a six or a dead ball. I can't remember what it is. But um, also, England played England played Wales in Cardiff under a roof as well. Uh, the, and there are issues but, with the the dimensions of the stadium. Mm. But I, I tell you, I've never gone home from a game people moaning about the dimensions of a stadium, or well, very rarely, actually. Uh, <laughs> but I have, I have heard a lot of people moan about uh, <laughs> bad weather. I don't know. I, as I say, 
the ECB has had huge uh, broadcast deals. I think that had Colin Gray's tenure been notable for the money invested in building a stadium with a roof, it would be a, a, a lot uh, more virtuous than how we are going to remember it. No, it would it would be oversubscribed if we only had one. Um, also, I mean, we we light has been sort of the bugbear, but it, I mean, we kind of had some very peak cricket moments with um, blazing sunshine and no one being anywhere near the pitch because you know it's too soggy from the night before. Um, and there was there seemed to be a particular concern about the speed with which the game uh, or play was abandoned on the fourth afternoon. Um, when a, sort of about three, four o'clock, they said, ah, that's it, we're all going to go home um, because it's going to take too long to dry up. And then sure enough, you know, two hours later, the ground's bathed in blazing sunlight um, and <laughs> there's no more play for the day. So, I mean, that seemed certainly like a different category of error. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and George picked up on it, actually, because he was there at the ground as well. You know, a lot of the pictures were right after, of the sunshine were right after, like, the ground had just been under this deluge. And so there was no way the ground was going to be dry within, like, with 15 minutes of sunshine, right? So right. It, that was a bit disingenuous, I think. It was, it, 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 that is absolutely true. I have, to, I have yeah. to say, to be fair to them, it rained incredibly hard. You know how yeah. we're getting these... Um, sort of tropical downpours these days, which uh, we didn't used to get. And it went on for a while. And then suddenly the sun came out and it made a great picture. It's a bit disingenuous to suggest. Yeah, exactly as Oz has said. It made it's a, a bit tweet, disingenuous. Basically. They could have started straight away. Because, I mean, but, but at the same time, I think they abandoned play at 345 uh, And England's theory was that they probably could have got an hour's play in a minimum of an hour's play in roughly around six. And that seems quite possible. Would it have been perfect? No. Would it have been okay? Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, um, I think on that, on that decision, and I, I, again, George picked up on it with the story that we did, there was a little bit of unhappiness with, you know, play being called off when it was. And I think that was mirrored probably the ICC as well, not not unhappiness, but a little bit of questioning, you know, and, and they're never going to second guess their umpires who are on the ground and stuff. But I think there was a little bit of, well, was the best effort made to get cricket on again that day? And and potentially it wasn't, you know. Um, it, it, could they have given a bit more time? I, they would have spoken to, they would have spoken to ground staff there as well before they made a call. Um, I, I think, you know, now having cooled off a little bit after the incredible frustrations of that test match, I think, you can kind of look back and you can say, yeah, it, you know, it's they probably didn't do their best, the match officials, in, in getting as much cricket as they could out of that out of that test match. But it was a pretty difficult match to kind of handle in that sense, you know. And 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 the thing about the light is also that once once you set, even though you're not supposed to stick to a, a light meter, you know, you're you're only supposed to kind of use it as a guide. Um, but once you make that first kind of once you make that first reading, whatever day it is. You've got to stick to it um, and you've got to be consistent with it. And, and that's only because the option of being inconsistent, the alternative is even worse, you know, because that will lead to players complaining that, hey, listen, we went off in light worse than this the other day and we're not going off now. So you've, and, and, then, and then effectively, as, as one ICC official told me, you, you're in a no-win situation as an umpire and a match official, which you kind of are. And, you know, umpires are on a hiding to nothing at, uh, at the best of times and we give them as good as, you know, they deserve sometimes as well. Um, 
So yeah, I feel now like a, a kind of almost, you know, four, four or five days on from it. I feel a little bit for them that it wasn't an easy match to handle, but I think there is widespread acknowledgement that they probably didn't do the best that they could do to get as much cricket out of that test as they should have done. Um, and as we've seen in the past as well, I think. Uh, uh, the other thing is just to be, um, to talk about the individuals involved again. Um, it's, I don't really think it's their fault either. I think the culture of cricket is complacent in this regard. And I'll keep saying the voice of the spectator needs to be heard a bit more. Um, everyone involved in running cricket is an ex-player almost. I mean, to to a huge degree, you know, the the chief executive of the ECB, uh, potentially the next chairman of the ICC, uh, the previous one as well, uh, previous chief exec rather. Um, yeah, so I I just think that, and most of the umpires, uh, we we should be uh, quite um, respectful to the people who pay all our wages, uh, which is the spectators. It uh, doesn't mean they're the only voice, but they should have a voice at the table. And um, I don't particularly blame those two umpires. They're doing what they were, have been developed to do and what umpires for generations before that. Going back to Dickie Bird, who was a brilliant decision maker, um, would have done as well. And I remember being very frustrated about them going off. I think it was at Leeds when there were some drain issues, like 20 odd, 25 yards from the boundary at one end. And you just think, don't care, get on with it. And it was a bit like that. There was a delay. Uh, I can't remember which day it was. Was it on the fifth day? There was a delay because there was a tiny patch at the hotel stand end in the bowler's run-ups that required some sawdust. I mean, you know, just get on with it. When people talk about these conditions being dangerous, which they do routinely, I just would always think that, are they conditions which you'd let your kids run run around? Well, they were, weren't they? Uh, and if if it's the conditions where you would let your kids run around then the players I'm afraid they have to find a way and if that involves wearing bigger spikes you know there's got to be a way Uh, they would have played football in those conditions wouldn't they I mean they definitely would have done and obviously it's different but um, if you're talking about danger it's not that different so uh, danger and unreasonable I think they're very very vague terms we've got to be um, respectful of both of them but you know, I think I think we're abundantly cautious at the moment, and it's great that this debate's happening, because it too it's too often it's been easy for people to say health and safety, health and safety, and that absolutely squashes any opportunity to have these discussions, uh, and and actually let's have them because cricket's a dangerous game all the time actually, and we don't want to make it more dangerous absolutely, but at the same time let's see how much uh, if we can get more play because I don't think uh, people are going to put up with everything we've seen in the past anymore. Uh, football is a dangerous game uh, to George, as Ashley Giles will tell you. Um, it was disappointing for many reasons, um, not least because the conditions for that test, uh, with the two ta- attacks on show, Oz, um, that it could have been, an, it was sort of setting up to be a real dogfight of a game. Yeah, you know, it, it was, I mean, that, that spell that, that Pakistan had, five overs, I think, was it on the mm, yes. fourth day? Day, I think on was. the fourth morning, yeah, the end of that yeah, first and it was hour, just like, you know, precious that, hour. That, it, it's what you picture, kind of, uh, uh, you know, in terms of a bowling attack, at least. That is what you want, right? You want that kind of, I mean, they were on the ball, every single ball. There was something in the air that was just doing a lot. Um, and it, it would have been, like you said, you know, the, it would have been a great game. I mean, the last ball that was bowled in that match from Azhar Ali, <laughs> like, that outswinger was just it like was hello Darren, Darren Stevens-esque that and he's a leg spinner <laughs> he's got a great googly Azhar but you know he hasn't <laughs> up, I'd say for like I don't know since when he's got two wonky knees 
and he comes up and just the first ball is ball to Josh Butler and it's just an absolute peach and you think man that could have been a really good game and the sun was out then the sun had been out most of that day that, that final day but they still there was still something in that surface um there was enough in it i think for the batsmen to play an innings you know if, if they kind of you know if they get down to it or whatever but I think there was enough in that surface to, for it to have been a really, really good game. And another one, maybe like Old Trafford, um, you know, Rizwan had a great game, I think, again, with, with the bat this time. And it was just shaping up to be something, something really good, um, which is why, you know, it was just frustrating that we couldn't see more of that kind of bowling. We couldn't see more of the kind of innings that, that Zach Crawley or Babar Azam played or Rizwan ultimately played. It just would have been nice to have seen more of that. Um, but, you know, them, them's your apples. What are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, um, I was going to say Abid Ali's innings was a bit like, uh, you, you, you know, Wipeout. You've seen the, 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 the show. Uh, you kind of, you were expecting one of those giant um, foam-wrapped mechanical arms to come around and knock him off at any point. <laughs> but he's sort of du- dudging, dodging and ducking his way along. But Mohamed Wizwan did play beautifully. Um, and George, that sort of 2-3-6 that Pakistan got up to, that, that was looking sort of more and more competitive um, with every ball bowled um, in the England innings, albeit that there weren't too many bowled. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I think it was um, just about par, maybe two fifty. Yeah, just about par. Uh, I, I mean, I, I thought it was a really good, fun wicket. Um, mm. I just don't know. There were a couple of balls bowled. I think Baba got one from Broad, and uh, Rory Burns got one from Shaheen, which I thought were just about unplayable. I think they were unplayable. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, should that happen? You want to see really good bowling, but you want to see the batsman have a chance. Um, so I, I, yeah, I thought it was, I, I loved the game when the ball is slightly on top. That was very on top, wasn't it? It was really, really difficult for, for, for batting. So, um, yeah, it, I, it would have been a pretty short game anyway. There's a possibility, you know, they're going to play on the same wicket. I mean, the weather's a wee bit better today, so they might have a chance. Hopefully, they will have a chance to prepare a fresh surface. But it's not going to be, um, it's not going to be massively different. That seems to be. The nature of things in England these days, and and maybe that it's all responsible for our uh, changed perspectives, our changed um, expectations. We we expect Test cricket in England to be fantastically entertaining because it nearly always is. So it was uh, particularly frustrating, but geez, tough to be a bat. Uh, and, and on that, uh, you know, we've got to cut these guys some slack. I saw one of the papers had gone with a piece on Rory Burns. You know, it's not quite time to look at him. But, you know, he's not getting many runs. And he's not. But, Lord, it is tough. So, um, you know, Shah Massoud's innings, his 100, sticks out, doesn't it? Like a beacon in this this summer. And and, and actually, Dom Sibley's done brilliantly as well. Because if you're an opener and you're going to get runs, you are going to have to play a miss and you're probably Mm. going to have to have some chances as well. I don't think it's ever been tougher. Certainly not in my life. Uh, in, indeed, uh, well, it's certainly entertaining, um, tough for a batsman, particularly Oz um, Fawad, Fawad Alam um, made his return, long awaited to the Pakistan test side, 11 years almost out. Um, but in those conditions, uh, fair to say it was more like uh, Alam to the slaughter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Very good. Very good. That was, that was well done. Standing ovation there. Um, You know, you've got to feel bad for him. I think it sounds like, and I I don't, it'll depend on which pitch they ultimately use. Um, They had had talked about the pitch, two pitches over on the left side, hadn't they? Um, On on TV, at least, I think they'd refer to that pitch, but I don't know if it's going to be ready or if the weather's allowed it to be ready and stuff. But depending on what pitch they play on, um, they they might think again about going with 
with with Shadab, you know, as as another leg spinning option. But if if they do, and if Fawad doesn't play, it's it's just going to be it's going to be such a Fawad thing to have happened to him to have you know to have to have waited out eleven years despite being like 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 the heaviest domestic run scorer on the planet in the universe anywhere, averaging fifty seven in eleven years and not getting picked. And, you know, some a lot of the time was for good reason because Pakistan had a really good middle order at that time. You know, he you weren't going to replace Azhar, Mizbah, Yunus, and Asad Shafiq in that time. There weren't many spots up. You know, opener, well, yeah, maybe, but you know, in the middle order, no chance. Um, but for it to happen to him, and then you know, for I wrote about it, I guess like that a lot of people are just going to talk about his his stance now. And Asher, of course, has written on his stance this morning. I think in, in the time somewhere. Um, they and and they will kind of. You know, unless he scores, and even if he does score, like Sunderpaul, people will still be talking about his stance, the poor guy. And we've been trying to find out, you know, Omar and myself, we've been trying to find out how that stance has become the way it has. And it's really, I mean, it's, it's the starting point. You know, his stance, essentially, when he gets into it, is the same as it has been for a while. But it, it's the starting point that we've been kind of wondering about. And it seems like, I mean, I'm, you know, it might be that he's not willing to talk about it so much because there's so much attention on it. But it, you know... It sounds like what he says is that it just happened naturally over the years. And I struggle to work out how that happens naturally over the years, how you kind of move away so much in your starting. When, when, especially when, you know, at the time of the delivery, he's the same as he's always been pretty much. He's very little to, you know, have, very little difference to how he was in 2009. And he had a kind of a Simon Katic kind of shuffle into the, into the stumps around then. But it's weird, and and you know, ultimately, I, I I just feel bad for him. You know, if he he and, and to be out the way he was as well. I mean, you know, to, to be given not out on the field, and for it to then be the barest of margins twice on DRS, on first on landing within leg stump, and then on hitting the top of middle. It's just like God, what's he done, man? What's he done to anyone to deserve this kind of luck? So I I hope just from an emotional point of view, I hope he gets another game. Um, and if he doesn't, it'll just be the saddest story I've ever heard on the cricket field. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, George, it's not about how you look, it's how many runs he score, isn't it? But um, obviously, Fowler didn't score any on this occasion. <laughs> well, his, to be fair, his game didn't look in great order. I, did, I didn't think, anyway. Because I, I, he, he was moving at the time he was trying to play shots. So you, you're making life difficult for yourself. But... <laughs> Uh, well, he could easily have been nervous. I mean, I'm not making any judgments on him in one innings. Uh, and those conditions, I mean, I haven't covered, I've never been to Pakistan, but I imagine those conditions are about as different. Uh, Pakistan to that day in Southampton, about not as different. Not so much, but yeah. I mean, the, so the pitches in Pakistan, uh, until this season, the pitches for a lot of domestic cricket in Pakistan over the last, I'd say, eight years have been very much weighted towards the bowling. So uh, to the extent that they've been poor pitches, and, you know, they wouldn't be allowed at an international level uh, because all you've needed to do, which is why Pakistan haven't produced that many really fast bowlers, is all you've needed to do is trundle up and, and drop it somewhere on a length, not even a very accurate kind of spot, but you need to drop it somewhere on a length and it's going to do so much that you're going to struggle to score runs. So but presumably it's not going to be wobbling in the air like that. Not swinging so much, but although, again, wintertime in Punjab, you will get some really? swing. Yeah, you will get some early season. You will get some swing. So here's the thing. I, I understand that Pakistan are starting to send a fair few players, under-19 players, for example, even more players to Gary Palmer, who obviously has been looking after Shah Massoud and Dom Sibley. <laughs> mm. So maybe we'll see more people with 
slightly open stances. Um, but <laughs> like, I, I mean, Gary Palmer doesn't quite go to that extreme, does he? The, the full no idea. Um, I mean, front no, I mean, well, boxer well, stance that for Well, we really know had. who his his players have been, don't we? He's had Cook and. Uh, Masood and um, Sibley uh, and you know various others who perhaps don't want to be to, to be known, but uh, yeah, I mean uh, the, the, uh, Ben Stokes's technique has he's gone slightly open in his stance, mm. only his stance I should say, because that te- when I say technique, it's only one part of it, isn't it? But it would be interesting to see if if I th- I'm not sure that the game is a sideways on game, uh, but uh, whether it's a completely open scorpion game, I, I I'm not sure either. <laughs> Somewhere in between, maybe. Yeah, and it was well, you know I, I just want to also say that he started off against, and George I think was getting to this that he he was starting off in these conditions, uh, in a in a difficult situation with the side against Stuart Broad, right? And you know Stuart Broad from round the wicket against a left-hander right now is about as in England is about as difficult a proposition as any left-hander is ever going to face. So, you know, he, he was nervous in that first jab that he had kind of with the ball. You can understand him being nervous. It's one in yeah. you know, I hope he gets another one. chance. Yeah. Natural yeah. justice suggests he should get another chance. Absolutely. Yeah, well, let's hope we can study that stance in a bit more detail over the uh, coming days. Um, for England, uh, the selection issues probably revolve around the bowling attack, as, as they have done uh, all summer, really. Um, whether sort of Sam Curran keeps his place, whether whether James Anderson uh, deserves a rest. Um, George, you've had a chance to speak to one of the men in contention this week, Mark Wood, um, and we're going to hear some of that interview now. So by the time the South Africa tour ended, it felt uh, like a breakthrough, really, didn't it? From from your perspective, it, it felt like you nailed that place in the side. And then I don't know if it's a combination of the pitches that you guys have been playing on this summer, but they've been, I mean, extremely different to South Africa. And, and, and have you just had to accept that they don't suit your style of bowling as much? Yeah, I think, obviously, with having so much depth in the bowling department, I think that it, it's never easy when um, you don't play, but it's part of international sport and being a sportsman. The lads have took a chance, have done really well. I was in the team first game, um, and although I didn't feel I bowled particularly badly, I, I think I could have maybe had a little bit more luck. Um, but I didn't take my chance, and others then came in and did, so that's part of sport. I think they bowled really well, and... Um, getting the balance of the side right we've won games and uh, the ball's went around so it suited other bowlers rather than me um, you'd like to think then if the conditions are in my favour whether that's you know the last test here or if it's abroad when we go overseas in the winter and um, if it suits me then I'm sure I'll get a fair crack then yeah I think four of your last six tests have been abroad haven't they uh, yeah. which is you know I, 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 does it feel as if you're being sort of typecast as a, an overseas specialist you've got something that works better overseas not really. I just think that you know some of the other lads are fantastic in home conditions. Um, probably better at dealing with the sort of nip and the moving ball than I am. It's something that I'm trying to work on and get better at. Um, to, to be able to combat that in home conditions where I can you know move the ball as well as ball at high pace. So um, I, I still think I've got a role to do at home, but obviously I, I mean I love playing away from home as well. I like sort of having that hard challenge if it's tough and it's hard to get wickets and trying to find a way um, that way with something different. So, um, it, you know, I think it, it is a little bit, um, you know, from 
playing away in the last, what, did you say four or six? Yeah, four or six, I reckon. For the last four or six that they're away from home, and I haven't seen it as like being just pigeonholed in overseas. I know that's more test than at home, but um, it is something that I want to get better is that my record at home, and um, if I get a chance, I'll be trying to do that. In terms of the Southampton test you played at the start of the summer, I know that you know that you ended up with a couple of wickets, but I thought you bowled a bit better than that. And the thing that must have been particularly pleasing is that I think you bowled 22, 23 overs, one innings, and you were bowling 90 miles an hour at that final over, it's the same as you were in the first. That must be particularly pleasing to show that you can carry that workload and not drop in pace. Yeah, I think my body's probably matured a little bit as well. I've done a lot of work for a number of years in the gym. Um, with the lockdown happening, I did a lot of running as well. So I got myself in a, a really fit position where I felt you know, I'd covered all bases um, as a fast bowler. Dominant in the you need some strength training, some sprinting, and some sort of cardiovascular work, probably long, like sort of longer distance running. And I felt like I ticked all those off in the lead up to the series, and I felt in a really strong place physically. Um, I think that with my body mature and getting used to, um, you know, I haven't got a lot of miles on my clock at actually bowling. So to actually, I've got a lot in the tank in terms of. I've, if I can keep my body in a good position, then I, I feel like I can keep those speeds up. Um, and I'm really pleased that after having such a long layoff, I've still managed to keep those speeds up later in the game. I think consistently now for three or four games, I've managed to keep my speeds up. And um, I hope that continues. Um, I see it as a, you know, that's a good challenge for me. I, like I mentioned, I would like to move the ball a little bit more, whether that's through the air or off the pitch. But um, I don't want that to be sort of detriment my pace and, and lose um, one of my main weapons. So when you started your career, I reckon the first time I spoke to you, actually, you were something of a Trent Bridge expert was your reputation. Does that ring a bell? You played three of your first four games there or something, had a really good record there. And you were getting reverse very often and quite easily. It seemed to come naturally. Yeah. Uh, is that just a reflection of the pitches we're playing on at the moment that they 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 hit the same nibbly sort of pitches, aren't they? Rather than have to hit the deck and get reversed. I think so. I think um, the, the, the sort of even the first game, I think um, where late match, I thought I bowled better than one wicket each innings, but that's the way it goes. But the lad that did bowl well was um, Boulder and, and Gabriel, and Gabriel doesn't really swing the ball. He sort of nips them around, like nips them back, nips them away, hits the a bit of a wobbly seam, scrambled seam, and that seems to be. Um, the pitches that have suited, I mean, the lads talking to each other, maybe we were a little bit, or I was a little bit slow at the blocks that first game, but realised that. Um, but the, the chat around the most of the bowlers this time is the odd swing with, and the wobble seems the one that seems to have done the most damage. So um, that's something we have to look at going forward. But um, it's something that doesn't necessarily come naturally to me. Um, but that's something I'm trying to work on and training to get better at. Presumably, you've got the very best people to talk to about learning those skills in the world. Uh, are, are those the guys you're learning from, your your, your fast bowling colleagues? Yeah, I th well, Chris Silverwood obviously being head coach hugely helps. Um, Pop Welsh, the, the bowling coach here, he's um, had good input. When you've got experienced players like Jimmy and, and Brody, I mean, I, I caught the, even just the other day, I was bowling in the warm-up um, before I went on the play, on, uh, uh, before the play started. Jimmy was just getting ready in the dressing room, so he must have been watching from the dressing room. He, he gave me a little tip about around the wicket, my angles and things like that. So 
it's great that you know that even when he's you're thinking about he's going to go on the field with the ball, he's still looking and trying to help out and contribute where he can. Um, and it's amazing that you've got those lads to tap into. They're brilliant in mid on and mid off when you're chatting to them when you're bowling. Um, vast experience. Um, it's just a shame that um, I'm maybe not quite as drilled as they are. Um, when they're saying, "Oh, just do this, just do that," I'm not maybe not to that level yet. But um, I'll keep trying to work on it. Um, George, you've been impressed with Wood whenever you've seen him recently, but it does seem as if he's at the back of the queue in home conditions. Yes, it does. Uh, and there are lots of reasons for that. I mean, if he could bat as well as Sam Curran, he would probably be ahead of Sam Curran, wouldn't he? But it's weird, isn't it, that England have talked about their desire for pace for, for years, and suddenly they have a, a probably a couple of really, really quick bowlers, and neither of them were in the side for the last game. And rightly or wrongly, you know, the barometer by which we still judge English Test cricket, probably wrongly, is, is winning the Ashes. And particularly if they can win the Ashes in Australia, which very rarely happens. Now, the last time England went, they had a perfectly decent attack that just could, was completely outgunned by the Australian attack, which was magnificent. You know, just bigger, stronger, faster, hit the pitch harder. It matters. And, um, yeah... Uh, it doesn't appear that they're making the progress that you would like because if they were, you would maybe have Archer and Wood um, in that in that attack. Um, but you can absolutely understand why they then they aren't because in these conditions, that attack of you know containing Anderson Broad Wokes is uh, utterly magnificent. Now Joffre was probably rotated, and that's fine. But I I really hope they give him the new ball in the in the final test. I don't think they will. Um, but I, I would hope they would because I think he's capable of being the best all conditions bowler. I, I mean, when you talk about resting James Anderson, why would you rest him? When are they next going to play? Because it's not going to be this year, mm. is it? Mm. So, uh, you know, I think it would be quite tough to tell any of them that uh, we're resting you for, what, January? Um, so <laughs> so I, I get that, it, that it's very difficult and, and, and we should never lose sight of the fact that it's a good thing that there's, there's this strength in depth, but it just goes to show that all the fuss about Stuart Broad being left out of that first test side. It's nonsense, really. I mean, he's hes obviously a very good bowler, but he's one of several very good bowlers. And um, it's completely reasonable that they rest and rotate. But Mark Wood seems to have been the unlucky one. He is England's quickest bowler. Uh, I thought he bowled fine in that first test. I thought he was magnificent over this winter in the test he played in the Caribbean the winter before. Um, and uh, I, I thought he seemed... A little bit dispirited, but to be fair, he he sort of said not, sort of said not, didn't he? But I thought he, but maybe I just uh, I didn't do a particularly good interview, to be fair. So maybe it's my fault. But I thought he seemed um, a bit frustrated because he sort of proved his point. You know, he got a nine for in that test. Now, what's the equivalent of a nine for? I reckon it's like getting a hundred eighty, roughly. It's unthinkable that a batsman that gets a hundred eighty in the final test of the. Well, Jason Gillespie might disagree, uh, but but um, it's it's unthinkable that they would be dropped a game or dropped a game or two later, um, and um, it's taken so long to build up Mark Wood's confidence. I think we have to be a bit careful about that. Uh, I I would love to see him in the side. I think he'll he'll get stuff out of wickets uh, still, and um, England have to keep one eye on the future uh, as well as one eye on the present. Very difficult. Not not no rights and wrongs here. Uh, but you, you can understand why they're, uh, they're juggling a, a bit and struggling to come up with the correct answer all the time because, it, you know, it is very difficult. 
who would be a selector? Uh, lots of sympathy for Ed Smith here, of course. I mean, um, not his fault on this occasion, uh, but James Anderson still hasn't got a second innings wicket this summer, uh, Osman. And, and Stuart Broad is now the number two ranked um, bowler uh, in tests, according to the ICC. Um, so uh, we've, been talking, we've been talking about it plenty. Uh, Butch has had his say, but it seems that there's a new pecking order being established perhaps there. Uh, within England, you mean? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, you know I, 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 I've missed a few of Anderson's second innings performances this summer, but when, when I've seen him bowl, he's been really good. Uh, and he's trouble batsman. I, I think I said it, uh, I think I said, did we say this on the, yeah, with Butch the other week on the podcast that, you know, if, if you look at an opposing side coming to England and you look at some of the weather around, you'd still think that, okay, I don't want to face Anderson. Uh, you know, of all the bowlers, you'd be like, okay, yeah, Broad is going to be there, but I really, I, I don't want to face Anderson. Just because of the stuff he can do. He, Anderson is, is, is a genius. Uh, you know, there's a long profile of him out actually in, 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 in one of the magazines today, 1843. Mm. Massive profile. And he is... The Economist, so, I think. The Economist, that's right. And, and he, and Samantha has done it. Ex, Ex-Crickinfo guy from very oldest days of Crickinfo back in like, you know, we're talking 99, 2000 kind of days. Um, and now an expert kind of long form writer. And he got, you know, he got a lot of access with Jimmy. Um, but he, he is, you know, we, we are still witnessing and some of the spells that he put in the, I mean, just the way he dismissed Sean Masood, it, it looked such a casual thing for Anderson to have done it, you know, and, and I was, you know, we're, we're running this balls of the century series um, at the cricket monthly. And there's one entry for Anderson in there, which, you know, I, I think it's being published this week and, and I'll let it out of the bag here, but it was the delivery to, to Craig Brathwaite. Uh, in West Indies, what, on the last tour, I think that big in swinger in the second over, the the really big hooping one, uh, which is fantastic delivery. And, and the thing, and the thing about watching that ball was that actually, and then going through a lot of Anderson's other wickets, is that you could have a top twenty balls <laughs> just from Anderson alone, he, he and does nobody would really time, complain. <laughs> and you know, the, the genius of Anderson really has been that he can produce that one ball that can get you any time, but he can also do the Glenn McGrath thing. He can also do the Mohammad Asif thing of working you over slowly. And just, you know, at, at his own leisure and, and kind of, and his own degree of comfort. And I think that, you know, Stuart Broad is a very different bowler to that. And, you know, I dare say there's, there's things in Stuart Broad that Anderson wishes he had. And I think he's spoken about, you know, when, when Broad gets on one of those spells and he's just impossible. And the height. Being taller. You know, <laughs> being taller, maybe not the blonde hair so much, but, you know, <laughs> once he gets on those runs, he just doesn't stop, right, Broad? And I don't think Anderson has ever had that kind of thing. But I still think, you know, personally, when I'm watching, uh, I, I, there's just something about watching Anderson and the things he does with the ball and the kind of deliveries that he can produce. He does it for fun. He does it like, you know, you're not even, you're not even noticing what he's doing and he's pulling off these amazing deliveries. So my, my view of Anderson is based primarily on, on that. And I know, you know, numbers say that he's not picking up second, second innings wickets this summer and, and he is older and he's missed, what, I think 10 of England's last 14 test matches. Is that right? 10 of their last 14, I think. Um, with injury That's and playing over, sounds quite possible. He's missed a lot of England's recent, and he's kind of reminding me of Dale Stain in that sense. You know that in that we are now at an end, I guess, with Anderson. You know, whenever it does happen, we are now in the end game with him, and it's just. But he is still in these conditions, just an absolute master and the, the most compelling bowler to watch. Still, I think out of that entire attack, and England have got a very good attack. But if you put on right now a spell from Anderson against almost any other bowler, I would watch Anderson you know, over any of them just because with the new ball, he is an absolute legend. Um, so, so 
you'd be reluctant to say it because these things get taken out of context and uh, and made out to be bigger than they are. But there's absolutely every chance that this could be his final test. Of course it could be. He's 38. Mm. So mm. you would think that the next injury is the last, but again, never write him off. And you would think that um, he's not going to love the conditions in either Sri Lanka, where he probably wouldn't have toured last... Uh, he said he wasn't that keen, but, you know. Um, or India. And then Australia at the end of the year... Um, I mean, he has to defy history and logic a bit to, to, to play in those series. But he has already done that, yeah? He's already near 600 wickets. So um, you, you would be a fool to write him off. And I don't think the skills will ever go. But, uh, I mean, uh, you know, I just agree with Osrani. Uh, Savour him while you can. Because if he does play this week, it could be the end. And uh, maybe he isn't as... I I don't know, I think he is pretty appreciated. I think they both are. But there are things about them that I I, I get that can frustrate because both of them, and this is a good quality, hate giveaway runs. They hate it. And sometimes that makes them, Anderson in particular at this stage of their careers, draw their length back just a fraction. He hates being driven. Now, maybe a a more attacking bowler, Dale Stane, would go uh, uh, pitch it up a little more. Malcolm Marshall too, actually. Pitch it up a little more and risk being driven. He doesn't like that. And who's to say it's wrong? As <laughs> He's got nearly 600 wickets. Yeah. But I, I can see that it's frustrating and it doesn't always appear that he's going for the throat quite as much. But, you know, he does it his way. His way has proven incredibly successful. But um, it doesn't mean that you're wishing the end upon him. It doesn't mean that um, you're suggesting England should move on. But just we have to be realistic. He's 38 and they're about to tour Asia. It could be the end, so appreciate it because uh, I think when people talk about Anderson abroad, they still will be doing so in a hundred years, and they'll be talking about them in the same breath as the other great partnerships like, uh, well, Wacker and Wazim and um, Greenwich and Haynes and whoever, whoever else you want to mention. And we're talking about those fast bowling skills and and, and on the back of wood trying to learn the the wobble seam i mean that's been we occasionally get into uh, one of those periods where um kind of traditionally we talk about the seam being uh presented upright and and looking for swing and all that sort of thing um but this summer the vogue has been to kind of just let it come out or you know wobbling from side to side hit the seam see what happens and and also someone who's been very good at that um very very good at that uh for pakistan is mohammed abbas who it's almost sort of screwball scramble the way it comes out for him uh at times and, and yet he seems to to have it on a string um he, i mean he is excellent in these conditions as we saw two years ago um and uh, and i think he's been talking about that uh that ball to, to ben stokes um earlier in the series as well yeah, I mean, you know, I think with, with Abbas, I think, and I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but I think the, the, that kind of wobble seam is pretty much his default. You know, he's, he's not one of those bowlers like, like Shami, for example, or, you know, or, or Broad or Anderson, particularly, whose seam comes out completely bolt upright and then lands and does something. He, I think, from what I've seen of him, which is pretty much his entire career, but, you know, not every ball in his entire career, but it seems like that's his pretty much his standard delivery. And I think what he does... Uh, you know, the thing that he does the best is that he works out the length that he has to bowl at on the surface that he's bowling to and when the batsmen present him with a challenge. So if they move out, and, they, and you know, as, a, as a few of the batsmen have been doing in this series, when they step out to him, he, he just alters his length a little bit. I mean, you know, he, he's talked about, the PCB have spoken to him about this ball that he bowled to Stokes 
And it, it very casually just said that, you know, I just adjusted my length a little bit and hoped that it would seem away. And, and it did. <laughs> he just said it like, oh, just like you do, you know, but it's actually, when you look at how much Stokes came out to that delivery uh, and that there was a bit of bounce in that, in that pitch as well, to, for him to hit the stumps, having pulled back his length that much, and then obviously to seam it away, it, it was something special, that ball. And I dare say that if it, if it had been bowled a little bit earlier, it probably would have been in our ball of the century series at some point. Um, but he, he has got the skill. It, it sounds like, and I guess bowlers would be better placed to speak about this, but it sounds like with the wobble seam, the advantage is that nobody knows which way it's going to move off the pitch. If uh, seam off the pitch, if it's going to seam off the pitch at all, nobody knows it. So you just have to land it on a length. But I swear, like watching a bass ball and, and George, you were at the ground and, you know, Alan, you were on, on ball by ball. You would have seen this. That spell that he bowled to root uh, on that final day, you know, it, it was a nothing day. Nothing was going to happen apart from a little bit of cricket. But that spell he bowled to root where he basically squared him up every second ball that he was bowling to him, you know, missed his bat by nothing, by Rizla paper kind of margins we're talking about. Um, those were all scramble scene deliveries, but they all seem to be doing the same thing. So, so you know, I, I think so. Tell, tell me this, Oz. Did did he? He got Sibley, didn't he? He did down the leg side. Yeah. Is that was that intentional? <laughs> I don't think it was. <laughs> Man, I don't know about any leg side strangle. I I don't know. I like. I know he's tried to do it. So you know, in, in the series, he's had these spells where he's he's bowled out, he's bowled out, he's bowled out on one length, on one line, and suddenly, and this is something that Asif used to do really well. Suddenly, he's bowled this in swinger. And I don't know whether, you know, that's, that's generally, I would assume it's just to trap somebody LBW, like before, because you have to get your line right and stuff like that. So I think he did that with this, but then he just got lucky. I think he may have been because he got Sibley LBW in the first test, in the first innings. Right. And, and, and also, we've seen Sibley out like that, but you tend to see him out like that. They've got a short leg and a leg slip, <laughs> and, and it, it's a bit more of a plan. Yeah. But, it, it, yeah, it, it's brilliant to watch. I, I mean, one of the things about the wobble seam, I, I, I wonder, is that it's better for the bowler as well because you've still got the right wrist position. Mm. And what we saw with Broad when he was sort of not really bowling cutters, but he was running this hand down the side of the ball for a year or two, um, when he was still learning skills, really, we're only going back a few years, is he lost his wrist position a bit. Mm. And maybe one of the benefits of the wobble seam is that you actually don't. You're, you're changing your finger. You're changing your yeah, grip a little bit, aren't you? Rather than your wrist. So I wonder if it doesn't have any sort of long-term negative repercussions in, in the same way that, um, you know, balding cutters up to a point might, mm. which is a, a, another possibility. You know, another thing he's got going for him is he's got a keeper who can and has stood up to him. Um, which, again, stats don't um, reflect the benefit of keepers doing this. But um, I don't know, if there was a, a player of the series decided right now, Rizwan would be there or thereabouts, wouldn't he? Yeah, he'd be, he'd be high on that list for sure. Trying to think so so uh, it, yeah. it's, it's a lovely thing to have because you would think that someone like KP would have come down the wicket to him. And he'd look to try and hit him over the top. And it's absolutely true that on certain wickets, you would think that you would have a chance of doing that. But I don't know. He's played a lot of places now. Well, yeah, that's the he's thing. he's been successful, all of them. That's the thing. No, you know, he, he comes to certain places and people watch him and they say, oh, you know, he's, he's good for these kind of conditions. And the thing right. is... But he does it everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> which is everywhere. In the UAE. He's got a 10 for in the UAE. I mean, you know, that... <laughs> and it was... I watched that match. I covered that match. You know, Abu Dhabi, that... That particular Abu Dhabi pitch was actually probably the most helpful spin for bowlers for, for a long time. But still, to get a 10-4 in Abu Dhabi is, is something. And then he's got wickets in the West Indies. Um, so, you know, 
everywhere he seems to go, he gets, and even when he went to Australia and they didn't play him in that first test of that series, which was, you know, stupid, essentially. But you can see why. But you can but see why, get, can't hey, you? This is the thing. So they wanted somebody yeah. to keep control at one end, which when he played in the second test, you know, he picked up a couple of wickets, but he didn't, he didn't go for runs. He never goes for runs. That's the thing. And so, you know, in this Pakistan attack, you need somebody who will just give you that control because Yasser Shah is not going to give it to you. Not always. No. Um, so you need somebody who's going to give you that control. And he, you know, Shaheen is really coming along nicely, like really developing very well as a bowler. But Abbas brings you control. And so I don't see why you wouldn't play him basically every time you can. I mean, you know, he, he's had a shoulder injury. He came back to South Africa. And in South Africa, again, he didn't pick up wickets, but he kept you. Like he, he doesn't go for over three runs and over ever. You know, no, he's very good. And it's lovely to see him back to his best. I, I, personally, I think he's a better bowler than Vernon Philander, which is obviously saying a lot. But he's, he's fitter. He's fitter. He, he can, and I, he I think can... he has more, more going for him on surfaces that, you know, Vernon's record in, in India, and for example, in Asia, is not great. You know, he, he, he was very ineffective in those conditions. And he was at his best, of course, in England and here uh, in South Africa and then in Australia, some parts of Australia as well. But I don't think Vernon had the kind of record that Abbas is already building up you know, in Asia. Um, and he just wasn't, you could see that Vernon wasn't the same bowler when he bowled in, um, you know, in, in places like India and, and the UAE and stuff. Well, we'll leave, we'll leave Big Vern alone uh, for now. Uh, one last chance to see uh, Abbas for the, for the series. One last chance, uh, well, one last test of the English summer, George, and one last chance for Pakistan to try and maintain what is an excellent unbeaten record uh, in test series against England going back to 2010. Yeah, brilliant record. Um, and uh, they could definitely do it. I mean, uh, you know, Stokes is a massive loss, isn't he, for England? No way around it. But mainly to, with the batting. But also, uh, he has really quite often played that part of the battering ram bowler who could, you know, go up a yard and bowl very aggressively. And he's done that so effectively. And so England went into that last test without any of those bowlers, you know, because it wasn't just no Archer, it wasn't just no Wood, it was no Stokes. So it does take um, one of their weapons away from them. And yeah, I mean, th this is the frustration, isn't it, that they're two really well-matched sides. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I'm really looking forward. I, I think the forecast is a wee bit better. Um, uh, I still think Yasser Shah is a really interesting one. I, I actually think he's a, a bit of a point of weakness because he, he does bowl wicket-taking balls, of course he does, but he, he does bowl quite a lot of bad balls. I mean, I, I was sort of thinking, comparing him to English leg spinners. I, I don't think... Is he a better bowler? This is going to sound ridiculous. Is he Just, a better bowler You've always got Ian... to the end of the pod, George. You don't have to do this to yourself. Is he? I'm asking you a question. Is he a better bowler than Ian Salisbury? Yes. And the reason I, I, I pose that question is... Would Yasir Shah have been given a fair crack in England? I don't know, because so much of the emphasis in England is about bowling dry. And I just think the captains would have struggled to, uh, to have faith in him. And, I, and you can see why, because he, he does bowl quite a lot of, you know, he's, he, he hasn't really changed. He, 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 there, there is a bit of all sorts there. And English captains don't like that. Would Joe Root have picked him? I don't know that. Would Joe Root ask him to bowl very often? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and that is why England is where it is with spin, perhaps. <laughs> like, I guess. Well, yeah, up to a point. There's the others. <laughs> no, but I think he, you know, Yasser, he has, I think, when he first came on, those first two years that he had, you know, fantastic years. Um, and, and he was, 
the thing about that stood him out because he wasn't a big, big turner of the ball. He didn't have a googly. He still really doesn't have a googly. But the thing about him was his control, especially over his length. He was really, and I think, you know, I, I got our stats guys to look up some figures. And I think he was landing the ball on a good length, basically, or in an area where you would like for him to land the ball about 80% of that time in, 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 in those first two years. But he's kind of fallen away since then. I think his lengths have been a huge issue. Control over his lengths have been a huge issue. And you're right, you know, he does bowl almost, I would say, one bad ball, if not every over, then definitely one bad ball every two overs, which, you know, is, is almost as bad in, in low-scoring tight test matches. It's almost as bad because you also have at the other end, you have, you know, somebody like Nassim, who's actually risen above his kind of experience in this series and, and had control um, and provided Pakistan with some control. But Yasser has struggled with it. And I, and I think in this series, maybe it's also been because he just hasn't bowled for a while. You know, he hadn't bowled for a long time. He's not part of Pakistan's white ball squads. He doesn't really play short form cricket. Um, and he just, and, and, you know, coming into it and then dropping a leg spinner into competitive cricket straight away after a long break, it takes time to kind of open your body up, you know, and, uh, and, and he has had problems with kind of, you know, the, the looseness of his body sometimes. Uh, and it takes him a bit of time to get, I thought he bowled, he, he got better the more he bowled at Old Trafford. Um, and, and it was too late by the end, but he, you know, his best spell at Old Trafford was probably when England were on their way to victory, essentially. I, th I thought he was at his best uh, then. And I think what he did at, at Southampton was still show that with, with, all the, with all the bad balls that he does bowl, like, like George said, you know, he still has that, that, that one ball that will get your wicket. And so, you know, I, I mean, Pakistan, the thinking has always been, that if you have a leg spinner, then you're willing to put up with that because you know that ultimately he will get you wickets. Um, and he has. He's got, what, 220 of them in 30 nothing tests so far. So He's got a few more than Ian Salisbury, let's uh, put it that way. Um, <laughs> Pakistan fans, don't at me, at George DeBell1. <laughs> I, I, anyway, did, I, how, I many, can... how many first-class wickets did Ian Salisbury get? Did he end up with 780 ballpark? <laughs> That's a good guess. I'm, I'm well, I know I don't know actually, but I mean, maybe <laughs> I've just been spoiled because we had Shane Warne for a bit, and maybe this Osprey is just was how actually good bowler. Used to I, remember bowl. his, I remember his debut against Pakistan, he was really good. He got Javed Mialar out, which not many leg spinners do. Um, at Lords, I think in '92, he was actually a decent spinner. I, I, and, and oh, he was. He, and I know people from that generation in Pakistan, in the Pakistan side, they do wonder, like, they, they were like, you know, whatever happened to him? Why wasn't he there? Have a like, look at the YouTube later? video of him, have a look at the YouTube video. Of him, I think it was bowling Desmond Haynes. Mm. Have a look at that because uh, again, he he could bowl all the really good balls. He just bowled a few bad balls, and and England doesn't have a great record with leg spin of of developing and nurturing leg spin, and and that's the, uh, and the, those that have played a fair bit have tended to be rollers rather than big spinners. I think Eric Holl Hollies was more of a roller. Um, so, uh, or more of a, maybe a Kumble, perhaps. But him, he was huge and bowled a great top spinner. So I don't think that's a, I don't know, it's just quite interesting. But um, I think absolutely Pakistan can win this game. I think Barbara Azam has looked the best batsman on either side. And um, yeah, I'm not even sure who's favourites. I see it as a pretty much a 50-50 encounter. But if we, get, if we get five days, we'll definitely get a result. Um, Ian Salisbury, very good batsman uh, when England won in Pakistan, of course, uh, 20 years ago. Um, 884 first-class wickets, ah, George, wow. so pretty decent. Um, decent. Anyway, I can, I can see the ground staff moving into positions. I think it's time we, we bid a hasty retreat to the dressing room. <laughs> the test match uh, bio bubble has been good to us. 
certainly if you've not had to have one of those swabs shoved up your nose. And uh, let's hope for the weather in Southampton uh, to allow us to play ball this time. We'll be back to preview the T20s next week. But for now, my thanks to George and Osman and to you all for tuning in to the Switch It podcast on ESPNQuickInfo.com.